You're listening to a Discourse ZA production. Hello and welcome back to The Small Print. I'm Bronwyn Williams and today my guest is Craig Wing, who is a fellow futurist just like myself. And to start with, like always, Craig, will you please introduce yourself the way you like to be introduced? <laughs> thanks, Bronwyn. Great to, great to be on here and uh, thanks for inviting me on this. As we discussed a while ago, you know, the profiles that we have in the public space is terrible. So I'll do a short and sweet uh, introduction, a short and sweet. Um, basically, my name is Craig Wing. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a PhD candidate right now, but I have been a futurist, although I dislike the term, as, as I'm sure you do too. Um, but I've been working in the future space for the last six years, uh, having consulted to many corporates around the world um, that run every single sector, uh, from the big guys to all the little guys. And really, I'm a co-author with you in this incredible book, The Future Starts Now. So if you haven't seen it, uh, for those of you that don't know, please do pick it up and support us. And I'm sure we'll chat a bit more about this product. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I'm sure many people listening to this are wondering why I've got a futurist on the small print. The small print show is really about unpacking democracy so we can become more participative citizens rather than sort of passive recipients of political policy that is handed down to us. But in order to make better choices, in order to participate in democracy, we have to be informed. And we have to be informed not only about current affairs and issues, but also about emerging affairs and issues that are going to influence us in our personal lives and in our professional capacity. And that's why I wanted to get you on, Craig, because your chapter in that book that you have just advertised, I mean, it's our show, so we can punch it a little bit, right? was all about the future of genetic engineering and the real potential we have now to start to actually play God to a certain extent and to create actual supermen, which as soon as you start to think about it, once you get past the sort of X-Men awesomeness of like, yay, getting cool new superpowers, does open up huge cans of worms when it comes to issues of things like inequality and what it means to be a human and human rights and all these really, really deep questions that really every citizen of every country needs to be considering right now. So to start off with Craig, in your own words, what did you actually write about and why were you inspired to write this chapter for The Future Starts Now? Yeah, Bruno, I mean, let's let's start with why I decided to be part of this book. And, and thank you so much. And again, just for those of you who didn't catch the little, little image, there it is over there. The Future Starts Now, expert insights into the future of business, technology and society. So the reason why, Bruno, is first of all, thank you for inviting me to join you and Theo as part of this book. And the reason for me was pretty simple. It was exactly as we've discussed many times over the last couple of years. It's a question of saying, well, we all have a role to play in terms of crafting our future. Uh, and, you know, as the book states, and as I say in the introduction, the challenge is many of the futures that we tend to hear are on one end of the other spectrum, the utopian dystopian spectrum, right? So either it's the great, wonderful, we're all going to be living till 200 years old, uh, there's going to be enough money for all of us, and robots are going to do everything. Or it's a dystopian thing, which, you know, we tend to see in Hollywood, it's the Terminator scenarios, and it's X-Men, as you said, and it's us against them, or some version thereof, which... Uh, you know, certainly in 2020, 2019, seems to have that kind of flavor. But my view was really to say, well, how do I share some thoughts around the area that I've called uh, Homo Geritus, which I'll chat about shortly, but really was about saying, well, how can we discuss something which I think is an emergent issue? But more importantly, how do I write something that contributes to, let's say, whether you want to call it the water cooler talk, uh, if you were going to the office, or maybe at home, the, the, the dinner table talk. And it's really about discussing and surfacing these pieces which allow us to have some kind of conversations between those that are close to us, whether it's family and friends, but to really start taking ownership of this future. Um, certainly many of us don't necessarily think about the future. We tend to say, well, 
what does our future hold? Well, it's about my family or it's about my job or some derivative thereof. And it's probably limited to maybe, I don't know, the next year, five years, maybe 10 years. But what's the long, long-term future? Do we even think about that? And are we aware of those things? So that's really the reason why I want to be part of this book. So thank you, Gary, for, for, for that. Um, my chapter is, is termed Homo Geritus. And really, it's a, it's a term that I coined um, off the Latin word of augment. Um, and, you know, and, and in there, I talk about a um, certain number of things that were perhaps precipitated or kicked off by uh, what I call an event horizon in 2018. That was the um, that was really the genetic altering of twin girls by Prof. Hu, uh, Chinese scientist. And basically what it is, he said, well, how do we ensure that via uh, using CRISPR, we can essentially eliminate the HIV gene from this set of twins, inadvertently also potentially making them smarter. But that's a, that's a separate topic for another day. Well, maybe we'll chat about it later. But the point is really to say, well, you know, in this realm of hum, human genetics and, uh, and almost a, a form of evolution, which is why it's Ugaritus, not sapiens, is the next level of, of, of augmentation, the next level of evolution, maybe one or two folds. Uh, the first will be, you know, uh, how do we uh, augment ourselves uh, via technology? And that could be, uh, you know, whether it's prosthetics or weird from, uh, you know, uh, super, super eyesight. So it's no longer a question of 2020, but it's X-ray vision, it's night vision. It's exactly, as you said, the X-Men scenario of Cyclops, let's say. All the way through to, you know, something that's maybe uh, something that's more commonplace is, uh, you know, uh, pacemakers, um, or augmenting smartwatches with, with ourselves. It's things like saying prosthetics on our legs, but it's really about augmenting the human being with the technology piece. So that's the one piece. The other derivation is really the genetic engineering part, right? And while that may seem crazy, we've been modifying our world since the beginning of time. You think about crops, so GMOs, uh, how we've domesticated wolves to dogs. Um, and even in some respects, you know, how we've used technology to augment our being has already been there. We've done it since the beginning of time, you know, whether it was the listening horn, or glasses, uh, pacemakers, I've spoken of before. But it's those two branches, specifically the second one, which is about saying, well, if you're about to have a child, would you pay a premium to remove that child if they had some kind of genetic disease? Uh, let's say that, say, you know, unfortunately you go for your prenatal test and it turns out that your child's got Down syndrome. Would you pay $5,000 to remove that from your child? I think there's, I don't think there's many folks or parents who would say no to that. But for an extra $5,000, if you can increase the IQ quotient by another 20 basis points, would you do so? Or another ten thousand dollars, you can increase their fast twitch muscle so they can run a hundred meters in you know in under in under ten seconds, and so on and so forth. So it's really those two worlds that are then coming together to say, well, what is this new world of Homo erectus, and what are some of the social problems that are now presented as a result of that? How will this now change? How will this now spin off? Will the Homo erectus, who are essentially a version of it, potentially um, you know a more evolved species, say you know those Homo sapiens, those non-augmented tech human beings are, are, are absolutely flesh bags. There's no use for them. Or will the Homo sapiens say, you know, these Homo geritus folks um, are a, 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 a aberration to who we should be. And so they should be cast off from society. And basically I chat around those two elements, but more importantly, it's a societal questions that then start rolling into those things. Where does it move into? And how do we start thinking about things around rights? Uh, around both kinds of humans, of, of Homo sapiens and Homo ergeritus. Where do we draw the line? Uh, where do you start saying, well, you know, you're now more machine than you are human, therefore you have no right to vote, uh, or you have no right to credit scores, or more so, right? And so the chapter really deals with all of those complexities. But really, the most important thing behind all of this is really the question of saying, well, it's no longer a question of should we, it's now a question of, uh, not longer a question of could we, it's a question of should we. You know? And like many chapters of the book, I think that's the essence of this. It's we cannot do this kind of stuff, but should we do this kind of stuff? 
So that in a nutshell is really what I've talked about in my, in my chapter uh, around Homo Geritis. Yeah, so that's a, that's a great overview, but that's a lot of information for people to digest. So let's unpick that a little bit and go a bit deeper into some of those questions that you've raised, because there's several questions that we're raising here. We're talking about the ethics of genetically engineering humans at all. But when we unpack that question further, there's sort of a case of sort of preventative genetic engineering and then sort of enhancing genetic engineering, which are really two separate issues. And sort of when you start looking at the sort of policy and legality of these things and whether lawmakers or regulators are looking at what we can and cannot do, they're probably going to try and distinguish things along those lines. Much like the very, very contentious issues of abortion. So in many parts of the world, abortion is legal, but only based on certain criteria. You know, you have to sort of meet certain things before you're allowed to sort of exercise that right to choose. This also falls under the line of right to choose over reproductive rights, over the rights of parents to dictate their own, or at least have influence over how their future offspring will be or not be. So I suppose the first thing to see is to say, how could sort of genetic testing before we even get into engineering, sort of link up with reproductive rights? Because of course, we're already starting to see that you can, and for many years, we've had the sort of tests that could say, if your child has a likelihood of getting Down syndrome, you should probably look at perhaps not continuing with the pregnancy. That's been the sort of basic sort of analysis, the doctors or advice the doctors are giving to women across the, the world, most, most of the case right now, wherever those sorts of procedures are legal. But as we get into sort of genetic testing, which is kind of required to do the sort of enhancement that you were speaking about, you have to kind of see what's going on in that embryo before you can decide what whether to progress with whatever treatment you're going to do there's going to be more sort of like exit points for parents. So I see genetic engineering clashing with reproductive rights and right to choose very, very quickly, probably even before we get into the sort of right to enhance. So it's almost like the right to terminate pregnancies that are not going to give you at least a perfectly healthy child. And of course, there's huge moral and ethical sort of lines on both sides of that debate. It's very understandable why people would have very different positions on that. On the one hand, you've got sort of people saying that, you know, it would be cruel to bring a child into the world that might have a likelihood to develop a horrible genetic disease when they're five or six or 10 years old, for example. If you can prevent that, we really should. That's still the preventative side. And on the other hand, you know, of course, there are people that are pro-life that would find any of this conversation to be completely unpalatable. So let's start with that. What are your thoughts on how reproductive rights are going to, and the, the rights to choose and bodily autonomy are going to run into genetic prevention, let's put it there, or sort of genetic selection? Or if you want to be more controversial, we can actually start to use the words like eugenics, which also scare people quite a lot. We wade very, very quickly into very, very deep waters in these conversations. And what are your thoughts as a futurist taking that particular issue, sort of preventative genetics and right to life or, or not, or right to choose or not, and how that's going to run into issues of law and policy making and where the sort of conflict points are going to go and perhaps how you see the, the coins falling. I know you're not afraid of contentious issues, Craig, so we'll just go right in there with that and then we'll sort of level up to the more exciting stuff. <laughs> Robin, you know, they're exceptionally deep waters, but they're exceptionally murky. Uh, and murky and filled with who knows what other kinds of uh, terrible things are lurking in those waters. But let's roll the clock back a little bit. Let's say, let's go back maybe a decade, a decade and a half, right? Um, all the way from on Ancestry.com, let's say, and tracking your genetics. So even before we go to the rights of, of, of you know, your unborn child and eugenics, etc., let's start there, right? Uh, so I myself, I did the 24andMe test 
uh, I want to say was back in 2009. For those uh, those listeners and those viewers who don't know, a 24andMe, you know, you get shipped a little uh, sample test. Uh, at that stage, you spit into it, saliva goes back to the lab, and they sequence a version of your genes, your version of your DNA. At that stage, I mean, we're now talking, you know, way before things like uh, surveillance capitalism uh, became a huge challenge. And around even more before that, you know, around uh, the, the use of uh, information all the way from Cambridge Analytica and Facebook and all the rest. And it's, as, a, as a geek and as an engineer, I just thought this is damn cool. Right? Uh, information is great. Uh, and how? Why would you not want to know more about yourself? Surely, once you know about those things, that's a great way to start. And so I did this test and my results came back. From the genetics that came across, there were a few interesting things. It's the normal kind of thing, you know, this is where your ancestry is from. So from my side, you know, you're, you're mostly Chinese. There's a little bit of this over here and a little bit of that over there. Apparently, I'm also uh, controversially, rather, maybe not controversially, surprisingly, uh, slightly South American. So that's a, certainly a bit of an interesting thing to myself. But around the, the, the different genetic markets, there were some other interesting pieces around there. Uh, the usual kind of fun stuff like, okay, Craig, you're more... Um, Cough uh, caffeine will probably affect you more than others, so you know you want to you want to make sure you regulate your in, your intake in caffeine. Uh, one is you have an inability to break down alcohol; you're missing certain kinds of chromosomes, which is why I can't have a, a glass of wine whenever we meet up. But also interesting things like you're more likely to smell asparagus in your pee. So these are all you know genetic markers, etc. But from a disease point of view, then there was some really interesting other pieces. It said that I'm something like I think it was 38 percent more likely to develop some kind of eye condition. Um, and if I remember correctly, it was macular degeneration, all right? So it's around, you know, the, the way your eyes are, your rods and cones, and how they would change your vision, and essentially a version of reverse uh, tunnel vision. Now, the nice thing about that is, from that data point alone, I could say, well, cool, I need to ensure that I do different things to ensure my eyesight doesn't deteriorate over time. Uh, you know, whether you want to take supplements, we believe in the old wives' tales of eating more carrots and uh, all that kind of cool stuff, there's a preventative piece over there. But the question then becomes expanded upon something like, well, if, what if you're more likely to have some kind of cancer? Uh, what if you're more likely to have uh, a, an addiction to, to, to cigarettes? Uh, what if you, uh, you know, and, and they haven't got there yet, but it's not far off, that Craig, you are a little bit crazy, but you know, we found the gene that determines that you may be a psychopath. And if you're in your significant other has it too, what then happens? And these are the questions that now start to spawn across. Excuse the, um, the, the use of the word spawn, because I think that's really the question that we now get into, right? And at what point do, 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 do I need to ask myself and a potential partner, look, there is a likelihood that there's a higher than 50% chance that any children we're going to have are going to have cancer before the age of 12, let's say, if that was the case. What is our responsibility as parents? Now, this becomes a complete minefield because it's not only obviously our decision as parents, but also the question is, well, what about this unborn child? And at what point does that child have rights, like the abortion issue? Uh, you know, is it, does the child have rights from upon conception, upon a certain stage, upon brain development? At what stage? These are all very, very murky waters. Very, very, very murky waters. I suspect how this is going to roll out is, unfortunately, I think, specifically in the realm of genetics, is I think the truth of the matter is it's already happening today. It's already happened today. We can see versions of this across the board. Uh, whether that's about saying, well, you know, um, we can change your outer appearance because that seems to be the easiest thing, right? So, so while it may be not your genes, it's certainly related to you as the human being, right? Uh, it may be argued that, uh, Bronwyn, yourself, you did LASIK eye surgery. Is that an unfair advantage to your other lesser sighted peers? Uh, and what does that mean if there was a, if you were an Olympian, uh, let's say, and you were doing archery? Uh, what does it give you a competitive advantage or does it not? So I think this area is going to open up very broad, broadly. And I think what you'll start to see is I think you'll start to see a split uh, in, the way, uh, in the way it's been accepted. I think on the one side, you'll have the more, 
I don't want to call it conservative for lack of a better word, let's say traditionalist. Traditionalist by saying, well, you know, and it's almost very much like the abortion thing saying, well, you know, no, all, all children should uh, should live and, and abortion should not be allowed. It may be a version of saying, well, you know, there, there's, there's no um, genetic uh, augmentation, genetic manipulation. There's nothing that's allowed across the board over there. The challenge is that there will be other countries who say, well, not only is it allowed, but we'll encourage it. There's no doubt in my mind uh, and without uh, without spreading online conspiracies to your viewers and your listeners, but there's no doubt in my mind that these things are happening now already, uh, whether it's in the deep dark corners of, of, a, of a lab in China or somewhere in South America or maybe somewhere in Africa. I'm pretty sure. Of course they are. I mean, we can take the, the Down syndrome issue again, which is hugely contentious. 100%. But I mean, in places like Iceland, they haven't had any Down syndrome or they have very, very few Correct. because it's so societally you know, it discouraged to continue with those sorts of pregnancies. At the same time, parents of people that have Down syndrome are absolutely horrified that this sort of eugenic practice is taking place, that people are being discouraged to allow the creation of certain types of diversity in the human experience. Yeah. And it's no, there's no sort of easy line in the sand. On the one hand, you've kind of got Richard Dawkins saying it's immoral for people to bring Down syndrome babies into the world. On the other hand, you've got living, breathing, happy human beings with those conditions. And the line from encouraging or discouraging certain pregnancies to take place or certain people to be born, which is what it actually sort of rolls out to be, is quite a slippery slope to actually starting to prohibit those sorts of pregnancies from taking place. I mean, this is when you get into the to the realm of your sort of your, your darker dictators in history. I don't want to use all the cliched words, but we all know that yeah. eugenic programs have taken place with disastrous social effects when we start to determine what sort of life is worth having at all on a societal level rather than on an individual level. And I do want to also draw that distinction. The right for a parent to choose whether or not to proceed with a particular pregnancy for their family is quite different from society deciding wholesale what sorts of people will be permitted or encouraged to have a place in our world. So these are not easy issues at all. And we know we have not found any agreement with issues like even just the right to have an abortion at all within society. It's hugely contentious. And when we start layering in all these other different flavors before we've even agreed on the basic questions as to being pro-life or, or pro-choice, we are wading into very deep and very muddy waters. That's what we're going to keep on saying today because I, I don't see any way that this gets resolved easily and globally that everybody is happy 100 percent. and you know Bronwyn, for me you hit on the key point over there it's societal and cultural this is where it becomes problematic right because it mm. is a society which will dictate well you know should you or should you not uh, the, the reality of the situation is those that can afford some kind of genetic manipulation are those that have the ability to pay for it right and if you have the ability to pay for it you're less likely to be uh, oppressed to be a, a a certain kind of way a certain kind of thinking but again, to your point, it's not just the Down syndrome thing. You think of perhaps, uh, you know, you've mentioned one, which which we won't allude to around, you know, uh, certain kinds of, of, of nationality, perhaps being, a, a, I don't want to say outlawed, but let's just say they weren't encouraged. But even more than that, you look at China and the one child policy, that's a version of exactly this. And that's not about saying, you know, if you have a genetic deficiency, it's just about saying one child, that's it. That's it. And this is a societal question. So it really becomes a question of saying, well, how do we think about these things by having open conversations? How do we have these conversations at the dinner table? How do we have it that a husband and wife, uh, or maybe not a husband and wife, maybe not stereotype, but parents-to-be can have these questions around the table before they start to think about this? Um, and then you start thinking about the murder of different problems, as we discussed before. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's just on the sort of preventative side. So we're talking firstly on like the sort of the, 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 the selecting, so sort of like positive selection or sort of helping Darwin's hands, so to speak. That's the sort of the, the early stages of genetic engineering. So it's more like sort of social engineering and selection. And that we've already been doing, as we've discussed, we might not like it, we might not be comfortable with it, but these sorts of things and this sort of choosing this, not that have been in place. I mean, if you go for fertility treatment, they're going to help you choose the most fit to fit for purpose egg, for example, before they implant it. That's already a form of genetic selection. But that's just the sort of early days. As you get much further ahead, you get into then, of course, the, the genetic enhancement, which is what you started speaking about with the twins that were born in China. And this has obviously been going on. And Genetic engineering, what a lot of people don't necessarily understand or fully comprehend is just how easy it is to do, just how revolutionary that CRISPR technology was and just how accessible it is. This is not like rocket science. Like it can be done in many yes. labs, in many places. And it's out, the, it's out the bag. You're not going to be able to put that back. Now that ability is there to enhance, not just to negatively select away from negative traits, but also to add in positive traits. We have to deal with this as societies. But is that then the same sort of question as right to choose whether or not to have a particular child? Is there, is there a comparable right in our current constitutions, in our current societies, a right to enhance beyond nature. And like when we start talking about these things, some people will of course fall on the side of it's entirely your choice. If you can afford it, if you can do it, you should absolutely be able to go for it. Other people would then argue that by allowing some people to positively, positively enhance their, their offspring or themselves, and we can do some of these biohacking things for ourselves too, that also implies a reduction in rights for people that don't take up that opportunity. So my right to choose now affects everyone else too in a way that negative selection really doesn't, which is why they are slightly difficult, different ethical considerations, right? So society isn't affected whether you choose to have a child or not, but society is affected, if, or at least it's, it's affected to a much greater degree if you choose to have an enhanced child that suddenly leaves everyone else behind. So societies are going to have to grapple with that. I think it's a separate issue, although in the initial days when it comes to sort of policymakers looking at this, they'll try and conflate those issues of negative selection versus positive selection, but they are quite distinct. A world where your children will have to compete for jobs and for place and status in society with people that have had unnatural enhancements is a very different world to a world where your children will only have to compete with other homo sapiens. What are your thoughts there on how, how do you think that conversation is going to roll out? Uh, so first of all, I mean, again, you know, let's, let's have a look at something that's at least in the context of this conversation, tremendously less controversial. Uh, but we still haven't figured that out yet. It's right to privacy, right? So what's the right around my privacy information and how much should I share with government? You know, and you're a big fan of that as well. So, so even just understanding where we're going with that, it, it's it, in the context of this conversation, there's a much simpler version of that. But let's play this out. Let's play exactly to your point around where it's negative selection and how does it affect the general populace? That, you know, if you have a child, then um, during this course of, of, of you know, of genetic selection for this child, you say, well, we're going to bump this kid's IQ up to over 140 IQ points. Now, that child starts at school. Does that mean that this child, and let's assume it's the only one ahead of its peers that have some kind of genetic enhancement, that will now uh, absolutely sweep the academic honors list for the next 12, 18 years and then put them onto a different path? 
So the first question is, you know, without a doubt, that thing's going to happen. But then the next question is, with those parents, are they obliged to disclose it? Are you obliged to go to the principal of the school and say, well, just so that you know, my child has been enhanced to have an IQ of at least 140. That's why I paid the extra $10,000 for at birth, right? What does that, that mean? How do we how do we then play that out? Do we then say, okay, cool, all enhanced kids go to this class, you know, the special, the special, the special smart kids class, and all the, the the Homo sapiens go to another one? But then it's a slippery slope because now you're saying, well, you know, I've enhanced my child, but Bronwyn, you've enhanced your child by even more. I paid ten thousand dollars to have an IQ of one hundred forty, but you paid uh, twenty thousand dollars to one hundred sixty. So what does that now mean? And how do you start having those kinds of conversations? And at what point do you start saying enough is enough? Right. So I don't know and I don't have no answers around these kinds of things. You roll those things out um, and whether it's in the, in the realm of academics and school or whether it's just in performance and athletes is an easy one again, right? Fast twitch muscle. But in many respects in the world of athletics has already been an unfair advantage. Um, it's by nature that athletes have some kind of superior advantage. Michael Phelps uh, generates less lactic acids in his muscles. Now, if you were able to do the same thing for all the other swimmers, would he still be superior? I don't know. But never mind that, it's just the question around training. It's about saying, well, you know, in many respects, the sports systems in developed countries are allowed to have, whether it's the natural or enhanced ability, but there is a training aspect around this. So how do you take your X-Men children, put them into, you know, Professor Xavier's Academy as well? So the next question is, what's the infrastructure that allows you to reach that? These are all questions that I don't have an answer for you. I don't know how this plays out. I don't know how the pieces fall, but I do know this is an area that I don't think many people are speaking about. But it is really yeah. here, exactly to your point. Uh, and, and even more than that, it's a social stigmas around what those things mean. Um, I think we're wholly, wholly unprepared. And there's probably two issues there. There's, the, there's the, the right or the obligation to disclose any superhuman enhancements that were deliberately engineered. And there's, of course, a sort of, there, there's a legal precedent there. So there'll be a paper trail. There'll be, you'll be able to see whether that child was engineered or not at some point. Right. I mean, for the most for the most part, unless you're able well, to do this in a lab yourself. I don't know. Or, you go think, to, that, or alternatively, you go to a country where it's... Will reveal. No, but genetic testing could reveal sure. it. So there could be like a tangible sort of line to say you have to complete this test. But then, then there's the right to privacy, the right to, to disclose or to, or to hide that information. But then there's a separate layer of rights issues that emerge on top of that, so that if there is an obligation or a right... Or, or a lack thereof to disclose, then what about the rights for society to discriminate? And we know how terribly our society has dealt with issues of gender and race. How will society deal with the world where affirmative action now also sort of requires a scorecard of taking people of different levels of deliberate enhancement or not? How will society cope with creating, as you were alluding to earlier, sort of exclusive domains for the engineered or exclusive domains for the unengineered, which will probably call themselves something like purebred humans, knowing the way that humans work, right? I mean, we all try to sort of claim superiority either through enhancement or through lack thereof. This, this, these are terrible issues because issues of identity and self-identity have what, have what have traditionally torn society apart and still are. How can we not be talking about this at a public sector level and yeah. at a private sector level when we're already able to do it? When genetically enhanced children are born and living on our planet right now, how are we not 
having these conversations, when we know what issues of race and identity and intersectional diversity are doing to society? How can we avoid that? How have we avoided this? Yeah. Brian, let, let me add something to your quagmire of, of questions and let's take a step further, right? What about corporations and governments or entities that say, unless you do X, you cannot be belong to, 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 to Y? So, you know, the corporation of the future says, you know, we do dangerous work. You have to take, you have to be genetically enhanced. We will pay for that. Uh, and what that means is you'll sleep less. You'll sleep four hours, not eight hours, because our job is high stress. Uh, you require that or you're required to move boxes. And so you have to take this and you have to genetically alter yourself so you have more muscle mass. We look at certain certain corporations, let me not name them, uh, you know, but they're big tech companies and how some of those moral questions are already being raised around working conditions. How long do you really honestly believe it's going to be before we hear companies start saying, well, the ticket to the game is no longer just smarts. It's no longer just experience, but it's also your genetics. Like that, that picks it beyond the sort of the sort of right to disclose to those sort of being forced to disclose or to place yourself on some sort of register to have those sort of tests made known to society. And yes, and, and even even expanding upon that, you know, do we get to a national level where, and again, this is not infeasible, where, where different nation states say, well, not only that, before you're allowed to have children, you need to have the DNA registry, but you also have to pass a certain benchmark because we can't, as a society, have a lowest common denominator society. So we have to ensure all of our new citizens are A, B, C, and D. So basically prohibiting natural selection, which as you alluded to, things like, you know, one child policies are very similar to that. So that's like big brother coming back into the bedroom. And when you start looking at the macro trends going on in the world, trends like degrowth in Europe, which is discouraging yeah. people from having children at the same time as complaining their population numbers are dropping, which is bizarre, but that's Europe. I mean, Europe do Europe, but <laughs> sure. there are, there's huge amount of press releases and reports coming out saying how bad children are for the planets and how parents should perhaps have to pay for the carbon footprint of their children. These sorts of messages do speak towards societies that in general are looking closer at not just who you are not allowed to bring into the world, but who you are actually allowed to bring into the world, which is a, which is a sort of flipping the sort of right to choose on its head. You know, so the right, the right to not have a child is almost soon going to be superseded by the conversation of the right to have a child at all. Correct. So child quotas and the sort of children you're allowed to have and marriage registries. I mean, again, Iceland is an example. They are quite a small genetic pool there. So they are literally registries before that you have to sort of go through before you can get married to make sure you're not marrying someone with too close a DNA. But how long before those sorts of DNA databases involve more and more criteria? We are moving towards society that ha is having more interest in individuals' lives, individuals' bedrooms, more paternalistic, maternalistic societies do seem to be a trend that we're having. How long before you have to get a license to procreate? There are many people who think that we should have those already, but it's sort of a genetic test to say you may not have children with this person, yeah. or you may not have children at all because your DNA could pose a future cost to society. Once again, as societies move towards national health insurance schemes, the trade-off is when society at large is paying for your medical expenses, society has a right over your body, right? So the one who takes on the risk should also have a say onto how that risk plays out. That's not a comfortable thought, but as populations do age, as medical bills can only increase, and they really can, there's no way to reduce medical expenses because as science and technology progresses, 
we have more things and more ways to keep us alive and healthier for longer. So medical inflation is almost inevitable and almost infinite. And it's almost infinitely elastic too, because individuals will always be prepared or at least prepared to ask society to pay almost an infinite amount to keep them alive for days, weeks, and months longer. And when you've got that going on and pressures for governments to take on that responsibility from citizens and for society to support the individual, society is going to be looking a lot closer at individuals. It's going to be demanding access to Craig, your 23andMe DNA profile, because society kind of has a right to know if they're paying. They, they want to know that you're not actually drinking any alcohol if it's going to cost them money in the future. At the same time, them being society, national healthcare at large, your government that's paying for your future children's medical bills for perhaps a very long life. Also covered in the book by Dion there is how life expectancies are nudging over the 100 mark and then on to some, Aubrey de Grey says we could live forever. At that point, societies are going to be very, very concerned about welcoming new members in who are going to be costly to national health insurance schemes. My thesis is that national health insurance could possibly be the biggest threat to basic values of privacy and liberty that society is going to see. That's not necessarily to say that it's a bad idea, but it is to say that there's a very real cost in terms of privacy and freedom that comes with getting more free stuff on that side. And I see that these issues of genetic enhancement, genetic negative and positive selection are going to collide with societal demands for more healthcare very, very quickly. Again, it's the conflict between the living and the yet to be born. There's, there's a huge, huge challenge coming up there when you start to layer in the sort of macro trends around sustainability and politics and shifting societal dynamics. Do you have any further thoughts on that, Craig, on, oh, the, yeah. on liberty and, and genetic <sighs> enhancement for, for all yeah. of us, not just the enhanced? Oh, indeed, indeed. I mean, ne- never mind, never mind the enhanced. You know, Let, let's just chat about, you, you spoke about uh, the born, uh, you know, the living and yet to be born. But there's the flip side of that. It's those that are living and those that should no longer be living. Uh, and where do we draw yeah, yeah. the line on that, right? So, I mean, and, and again, we're both from South Africa, and, you know, for, for, for those listeners and viewers, uh, South Africa, we've got these lovely game parks, Kruger National Park, for argument's sake, um, and other game parks where it's where culling is, is, is something that is necessary to get rid of some of the weaker animals so they, they don't eat all the food and so the stronger ones can survive. Uh, and and what, is the, what is the thoughts around that? We know that the world can only sustain a certain number, depending on what you look at. Is it 10 billion? Is it less? Is it more? Uh, the same question in terms of enhancing our population growth. At what point is it no longer about those coming into our new populace, but those that are old and frail that need to exit? And how do we fast track those kinds of things? These well, are national all health terrible, insurance terrible schemes questions. do that. They do. They, <laughs> they do. do that. They do. They have the... Like the, the NHS in the UK has a maximum amount they're prepared to spend on to keep someone alive. So when your treatment's going to cost more than that, they're going to just defer your treatment until it's no longer required. That's sort of the nicest way to say it. But there has to be a limit. There has to be a limit. Otherwise, as I've said, demand is infinite, but supplies are not, whatever the modern monetary theorists might say. You know, like real resources, <laughs> there's only so many hands on deck, literally, when it comes to treatment. Yeah. Very uncomfortable questions. And that's going to get worse because if genetically enhanced children are born, most parents will want them. Genetically enhanced children will probably live longer than the rest of us because that's what they've been designed to do, which means conflicts between generational cohorts, the unborn, the the recently born and the, the born quite long ago, but still hanging around groups are only going to increase, particularly as we start running into scarcity problems around environmental issues, around resource bounds that are already 
being stretched to the point that politicians and policymakers are asking us to adopt degrowth policies, that requires a lot more sharing. And we're not a particularly sharey species, yeah. are we? No, not at all. I mean, and, and you know, the challenge behind these kinds of questions is, is most, I think, let's say, maybe not say it's most, but certainly those who are able to, to think for themselves, and that's why maybe it's not most, but certainly if you were to say, you know, do we have a challenge with overpopulation and resource constraint? I think the majority of those who are able to answer that question would say yes. So on paper, at least, we're able to theorize and say, yes, we've got too many people. But if I were to say to you, Bronwyn, or any one of our listeners or any one of our viewers, do you know anyone in your family or friends that have got cancer? Uh, without a doubt, the answer would be yes. Well, then based on the previous answer to the question you just said, then surely they should no longer be with us because they are drained to society or some version thereof. Right. And this is the question. Well, but that's the point. Because it becomes, when you have a look at it from a macro perspective, the macro numbers indicate exactly that we've got too many people. But when it becomes a micro issue, when it becomes a personal issue, we can't fathom that. Our emotional uh, pieces of our brain kick in, right? And that's the challenge that this is facing with. This is no longer about culling animal species. This is now about culling Uncle Joe. And, and, and auntie this and grandma that, right? But that is the reality of the situation that we're getting into right now. You want it controversial, I give it to you. But that's really the question that we have to now get to, is about saying what's the right of the individual versus the right of, the, of, of everyone else? Of society. And that's exactly it. We're running into the, this point where the individual is clashing more and more with society. And the, the other thing is that the choices individual makes do have a material and emotional cost on society in a way that individual choices have not done in the past. And we are looking at things like social safety nets. That means society has a say in your life. That's the trade-off between freedom and free stuff. And if we want more free stuff, we have to give up some freedoms for the greater good. That's the way the balance works. There's no free lunches in this world, right? So we're always having to, to choose. And of course, what's absolutely would be best for me and my future, you know, one day, hopefully very enhanced grandchildren would be to be as enhanced as possible, right? But at the same time, that would be against the interests of people that don't have access to that. There's a very huge sort of divergence there in terms of individual interests, what's best for the individual and what's best for the herd. And what artificial engineering does that breaks that balance, that dynamic, because human society evolution and nature evolution and ideas evolution in politics is generally finds a balance between conflicts and collaboration. And nature has that on a very sort of fine balance. You have to have competition to have growth, but you also have to have collaboration for safety. But genetically changing that mix, deliberate sort of enhancement throws that balance out to quite a large degree. And it throws it out at a natural level, like literally between enhanced people and less enhanced people and how that affects just general evolution of humanity as a, as a mammal species. It also throws the balance of power out very, very quickly. We already know the sort of differences that you get in terms of people that have good nutrition in childhood and those that don't. Their outcomes in life are markedly different through no fault of, at all of the child that was not able to get good nutrition in childhood. Those children are not going to benefit from a society where the wealthier children that are already outperforming them because of their advantages are going to have even more advantages from an inequality point of view, and as South Africans, we know all about inequality, genetic inequality is probably going to be one of the biggest debates of our human future. And there's kind of two paths to take. Either we're going to say we accept that because the ultimate good is to enhance the species by giving all the best resources to the people who can afford it so that we can actually sort of transcend humanity 
and sort of put the human project on so great a trajectory and over to sort of more conservative views that say, as you were saying right at the beginning, just because we can do something doesn't mean that we necessarily should. But at the same time, that could be argued, that outlook to say we should ban this altogether, that we should not be able to do this because it's going to destabilize society too much. At the same time, that could also be criticized by people that do favor sort of progress and maximizing progressive potential as being self-limiting and also perhaps perhaps species ending. Because if we're not sort of progressing, you know, ultimately we're heading towards all sorts of existential crises. I mean, the, the earth ends in many different ways and sort of hedging our bets into sort of catapulting our species up there, the evolutionary ladder by by using the availability we have in terms of science and technology, much like the transhuman movement is saying, the transhuman movement is very positive and very much part of the futurism movement, would say that we have to, we have to follow the risk. We have, to, we have to follow the progress as far as, as we can take it. Those are two very different views. And they're very similar views to the conflicts taking place in society right now, where you've got sort of progressive forces and more conservative forces that are in terrible conflict and the, and the gap only seems to be widening yeah and i mean you know it's it was interesting as you're speaking i mean it's it's almost like this whole point of equilibrium uh whether it's from a species point of view whether it's a resource demand but it's the eradication of equilibrium there is no more balance point right because it's now being artificially created or destroyed and that becomes a huge, huge problem for us because of all the questions and all the things we spoke about before. How this plays out exactly as you alluded to, I just think that it's going to be distributed. It's going to be the haves and the haves nots again and again and again, whether it's from a, you know, historically, it's from an income point of view, it's a resources point of view, it's access to stuff point of view. I just think that plays out time and time again. If you have the ability to enhance and you're wanting to do that, there will be countries who will not only accept that, but likely will encourage that because it strengthens their societies. So when you start rolling this up, now again, it's no longer a question of the individual society, but it may be societies, communities, countries that want to have the enhanced on their shores because it means that they create more and they are able to uh, have a better standard of living. They're able to have a better offspring uh, in the long, long future. Do I even enter a place now where this becomes a political issue? Uh, you know, of countries saying, well, you know, we'll accept them. If you don't want them, we will pay a subsidy and we'll subsidize to have them genetically enhanced because you see the long game, 20 years is going to benefit us all. And then, yeah, so instead of having tax um, havens, you have like like DNA havens, right? Yeah, so you can go and, go and yeah. put your genetic surplus and you go and live there. But that's exactly it. This is going to probably be a point, be a point of sort of basically geographic or geopolitical conflict, already we're starting to see different regions of the world. And if you can use it very sort of broadly in terms of how the sort of dollar hegemony and the sort of US version of the world is sort of fragmenting into different poles of power, there's basically three sorts of political stories being drawn out. The sort of Washington consensus, then you've kind of got the Beijing consensus as to how we deal with technological progress, and you've got the European consensus and what's going on there. I understand, of course, Africa and India are also worth looking at, but they don't really have a defined policy on what we're doing with technology yet. There's many sort of speculators saying what Africa should be doing, what India could be doing. But the sort of people that have started drawing up actual policies and actually implementing it from a sort of more sort of bureaucratic top-down perspective, there really are those sort of three points of view in the world. 
So America's obviously still quite capitalist, even though they are tending a bit more socialist at the moment, but they've tended to back corporate, back tech development on a more sort of free market, free range kind of basis. And as a result, and if you want to look, you look at technology, but the same issues are going to roll out in this genetic sphere. You kind of end up with your, your massive tech oligarchies on your sort of your Amazons and your Facebooks, and they be, essentially become sort of worlds of their own, borderless, like, you know, corporate pirates that are sort of like changing the world in their own image or better or worse but it's kind of a wild west approach to technological development and regulators tend to sort of limp along a bit behind then you've got sort of beijing that has sort of pushed ahead that's perhaps they, they've gone from a more centralized approach but they've also gone from approach of actually pushing more capital into contentious technologies like artificial intelligence for example and into things like genetic engineering i mean that's where those twins came from right so China is like taking a, a less perhaps sort of cautious approach to whether we should be doing things or not and going more sort of full into it, but also leapfrogging a lot of America's technological world. I mean, this is a lot of people sort of theorizing that, that China could leapfrog America on issues like artificial intelligence. And I'd add to that mix probably in genetic engineering too, because they're willing to go where perhaps America would not in certain places, but from a more centralized coordinated point of view. And then you've kind of got on the opposite end to America's, you've got the European consensus that seems to be emerging that they're saying we don't want to innovate, we'd rather regulate. So you've got to kind of pick one of those. Those that can't innovate, regulate, those that don't want to regulate so much do do a bit more innovation. And Europe is putting the handbrakes on all sorts of emerging technologies with very, very strident regulation, saying that they, they're essentially taking quite a conservative approach to what's going on there. And this for me is quite interesting to see how those worldviews are going to translate into the domain of genetic engineering, because it's very similar contentious issues to the issues of sort of emerging powers in artificial yeah. intelligence. And that means some countries will say yay, others will say nay. And if you follow those lines, probably genetic engineered babies will be banned in Europe, but probably embraced in China and America, but for different reasons and with different ways. That creates a very fragmented, very different world where you can almost arbitrage sort of technological regulation according to your personal needs if you're rich enough yeah or do we throw a fourth wild card in there and say well what about those who decide all three of those bottles are not for me because you know i've booked my next seat onto onto the next uh, mission to mars or to the moon and so we're going to eradicate all these rules and so it becomes the truth of the wild west where everyone does whatever they want or is it down to a individual dictator that says you know if you want to get onto my blue spaceship that goes somewhere else you abide by these rules and these rules are we have to ensure that these children, because we are colonizing a new planet, have to have an IQ in excess of 140, have to be able to live to be 150 years old, and need to be able to lift crazy heavy stuff, because those are the requirements. That's the price of the ticket going to colonize a new world. Well, at least there, the Martian constitution is very democratic. It says that all <laughs> sentient being, beings do get equal rights, whether they are humans or not. So they've sort of covered all those bases, so whether they're sort of artificial creatures made of artificial intelligence, whether they're humans that have been exported from Earth, or whether they are aliens that we happen to meet up in the, up in the, up in the stars. The, the, the initial Martian constitution seems to be quite inclusive, but it seems like they've at least thought about some of these issues, whereas well, a lot of our terrestrial powers seem to have ignored them, although they might be the most important questions of our species over the yeah. next few generations. Well, let's, let's use it as a segue, right? You spoke about sentient beings 
and let's talk about the second category right now, where it's no longer just about the genetic stuff, but it's the augmentation part. Uh, and, and what does it mean for sentient being? At what point are you no longer a human sentient being, but an artificial sentient being? where you plug some kind of chip in. And I spoke about this, you know, all the way from listing horns to glasses to pacemakers. When you have the brain net, uh, you know, you connect our consciousness online. Are you still a sentient being? Oh, yes, of course you are. But at what point are you no longer a one that is part of the homo sapien race? What are the rights afforded to that? Again, the same kind of questions hold true now. Now, it's not about saying, well, we've augmented our child's uh, intelligence by 23 basis points, but rather they put on some kind of interface, they put on a set of glasses, they put it in a fancy Apple iPod version 5000, and that connects you direct to the internet. What are those kinds of questions that then hold true? And those, again, are questions that we haven't even thought about. Uh, today, already, we look at sports. We look at, uh, at least in South Africa, you know, the terrible situation before it happened with Oscar Pistorius. Uh, and his blades on his legs. Uh, but then there was the Brazilian runner, I can't remember his name, but then there were questions of saying, well, does he have an unfair advantage because of blade length, the springiness, if you will, of the material? Does it give them an unfair advantage, right? So again, these questions are also coming through and we don't know the answer to these things, but they become real. So it's no longer about being born like this, but it's about saying at your grand old age of 30, 40, 50, 60, maybe it's 120. Are you augmenting yourself to be as fit, if not more so? And then almost all of our arguments fly out the window around those saying, well, those that should be moved on from our species around saying, well, those that are, have some version or some way to still participate to make sure society is better. Yeah, it's almost forced enhancements for, for people that are no longer pulling their weight one way or another could be a direction that some more sort of draconian societies might want to move into as sort of economic economies do become more constrained and there are more demands upon sort of national physicists for very real resources. These are things that we probably should be concerned about, especially if you sort of our age, right, Craig? I mean, we're still going to be around for quite a long time. We're going to start yeah. to see the fallout with a lot of these issues. This is not science fiction. I think that that's, although we have been talking about things that sound completely crazy today, none of this is science fiction. We're talking about things that can already be done. They're just not being done at scale yet because we haven't necessarily felt the impacts on our own societies. Yeah. But I think that as we do live in Africa, we, we're going to be at the short end of the stick if we don't take proactive choices because other economies are already thinking a bit further down the line. I don't think anyone has thought quite as far as they should as to what's actually going to, what are the, the results of the policies or lack thereof that we take. But Africa's population is going to be the largest population in the world in a very short amount of time. And we're going to have, we're going to bear the brunt of the consequences that not just what we make, the choices we make, but the choices that other people make too. And that's what seems so unfair about these complicated, wicked problems is that you can't opt out of it. By doing nothing, you're still going to be affected by someone else's choice, by someone else's choice who you cannot really control. As South Africa, we don't really have a say over what choices America, China, Europe, or India is going to make with regards to this, but we're going to have to react and adapt and sort of put on our game theory hats and, and play the cards that we, that we have. This is the unfortunate thing with, the, with these sorts of genie out the bottle technologies. It's not going to go away. The question's always going to be there. Much like with nuclear warfare, we have, we have to live with the risk that there are several generally old men with, that have access to, to big red buttons and sort of a risk that we have to live with. When it comes to nuclear warfare, we've decided to put that away. We decided we're not going to do that for now. We won't scare people too much with that story. But we have not even decided yet what we're going to do with this sort of 
genetic nuclear bomb that has already been unleashed. We haven't even said whether we should be doing this or not. And I think that that's the question that people listening to this today need to take away. They need to go, you need to be pushing these issues to your politicians because they are so disruptive. We're not going to make up your mind for you as to whether it's good or bad or what sort of policy course we should be dictating. That's not like Craig and I's role. Our role is to, in the future space is to ask the questions and to help you decide for yourself. You've got to take this information and make the choice. Do you have anything to add there, Craig? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's all about conversations. As we said in our introduction, I think it's, the, it's, it's, it's twofold. It's the conversations that we need to have. One is asking the hard questions, discussing the hard topics about saying, well, what is my position on this? And by and large, I don't think people have answers, and that's fine, but let's at least talk about those things. I think that's the first point. I think the second point is this stuff is already here, and things are becoming quicker and quicker. Dolly the sheep has been around for, what, 25 years? Uh, you know, in a, in a blink of an eye, the IVF, uh, you know, it was, was a taboo subject 20 years ago, and now it is almost the norm in certain countries, a certain age becomes the norm, right? Um, what happens next? The, the uptake and the speed of response of many of these things are here today uh, and tomorrow will be commonplace. And unless you speak, unless you have a conversation with immediate, your immediate household, your friends, your policymakers, etc., these decisions will be made for you. Uh, and in South Africa, we just have to think about our terrible history of apartheid, where maybe there weren't enough people speaking out. And the, the dangers are inherently there. What happens when and if we don't speak out? Can we afford to do this? Can we afford to be silent when the decisions are made on our behalf? Absolutely. Um, I think we've already been speaking for quite a long time, and I think we've definitely given people enough to think about today. So, Craig, if you've got any parting thoughts, this is the, the chance, your last chance to, to get them out, anything that we might have missed today. Well, Bronwyn, as I started, the only thing I can say is grab a copy of Bronwyn and Theo's book. There are a number of essays that talk about this all the way from, uh, you know, living forever to things on Mars to whether it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a UBI. But this is a great place to start. Bronwyn, you've done incredible work yourself and Theo curating some of these thoughts. So uh, if nothing else, if you enjoyed this conversation, have a punt uh, and buy the book, have a think about it, have those kinds of conversations. But for myself, Bronwyn, thanks for inviting me. I hope we've, uh, we've maybe scared and excited some of the listeners. And I think that's good because that's a space you want them to be to at least have these conversations. So from my side, uh, short of saying thank you, that's about it. Fantastic. And no, I didn't pay Craig to say any of that. One last thing, Craig, if people want to get hold of you, if they want to continue this conversation, shout at you, converse with you, argue with you, or even agree with you, surprisingly enough, some people might even do that. Where can <laughs> they find you? Yeah, the easiest thing is find me on my socials. Uh, so so um, it's all the way from Twitter, you know, Wingnuts, W-I-N-G-1-2-3. So that's Wingnuts. That's my Twitter handle. Uh, I've got a website, Craig Wing, C-R-A-I-G-W-I-N-G.com. Uh, and we'll find me on LinkedIn as well at Wingnuts123. Otherwise, um, yeah, feel free to, to, to follow me on any one of those places and we can engage further from there. Of course, you can also find Craig on the FBI's database because he's spat in the cup. <laughs> That's a different story for a different day. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, you. Have a good one.